Well, good morning, Trailhead Church. We're going to be looking at the book of Genesis, chapter 3. If you're using our Bibles, you can find that on page 2. Again, that is Genesis, chapter 3, the entire chapter, if you're using our Bibles, page 2. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat any of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, y'all. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve, and uh, I am the lead pastor. Merry Christmas. We are continuing our Advent series uh, this morning, before we jump in, though, um, it was mentioned during the offering that our first fruits offering has been postponed a week. I sent out an email to all of our members and regular attenders to let you guys know that our capital campaign first fruits offering uh, is being delayed a week. Um, if you brought one today, no problem. If you dropped it in the offering, great. Hopefully, it was clearly marked. If it wasn't, uh, just do us a favor and, and put a note in the response box. Um, with one of the cards that are in your bulletin and let us know that, that gift was for the, uh, the capital campaign so that we can get it clearly taken care of. Um, if you didn't get the email but you would love to be on the list of, of correspondence, just visit Connection Point and we will get you signed up on PCO so that you can be on our email list. Uh, we don't send out spam, but we do send out uh, important information on a regular basis, just to keep you updated about stuff that's going on. So uh, go ahead and sign up for that. Also, If you haven't had the opportunity to commit to our capital campaign, 
um, and you're wondering, do we want you to give? The answer is yes, we do. Uh, and we would even love you to still fill out one of our response cards and let us know because that allows us to account for that gift and account it into the totals. Okay, so it's awesome if you just give, but we would love to know your plan for giving as well. So if you haven't turned one of these cards in yet, please do so. It will help us in our planning. Um, and of course, you're welcome to join us as we continue to seek to be faithful to what God has given us and to step out in faith to what God has ahead of us. Yesterday, we had a huge event, uh, our affordable Christmas. Um, It was our 11th year. Uh, We've been doing affordable Christmas longer than we've been trailhead. That's kind of funny. Um, We started uh, before we actually became an independent church, and and, uh, it was awesome. We served around 60 families yesterday, uh, and that represented right around 200 kids uh, and so we were able to prov- provide a, 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 an affordable Christmas uh, for those families, um, honor them, and, and um, man, it was a day full of service. It was a day full of memories. It was a day full of joy. A lot of gratitude as I moved around and spoke with the families we were serving, a lot of joy as I moved around and spoke with the, the people that were, were serving. Um, it was pretty incredible. And, uh, and thank you to all of you who donated, to all of you who contributed, to all of you who served um, man, huge thanks because um, we just, we just kind of uh, dropped a, a, a stone into the water uh, and there are ripple effects of gratitude that are moving out from that even now. And so not only did we do an immediate good, but of course there's always those things God will do from that. Uh, anytime you express love, man, there's ripple effects of love. And so um, we've done that in our community. So thank you for loving our community well and for serving faithfully. Uh, I do want to thank especially our leaders because they are the ones that for, I don't know, six or eight months were laboring in the background to make sure that this event was organized well. And if you were there, you know it was organized well. Um, man, people knew where to be. Um, there were charts. Man, there were even flow charts. Flow charts, y'all, like flow charts, not just spreadsheets, but flow charts showing where you're supposed to be, how to make sure people are cared for, right? To make sure they know where to go. I'm like, that's amazing. Um, I know those things exist. I have no idea how to make them. And so um, I want to thank uh, Lori Lauterbach, who is uh, Trailhead's executive director. She um, was the point leader of the point leaders. Uh, she was the one that was at every meeting, the one who was casting vision and um, really carried a lot of weight for this thing. Uh, Sandy Kim, I, I think she picked up the nickname Organizational Beast um, through this. And so huge thanks to Sandy for making flowcharts and spreadsheets and everything else. Lene Robinson, who is a faithful uh, servant on our finance team, but has also at every event we've pulled off been one of those quiet, faithful laborers in the background. She did a tremendous amount of work. Anna Huniak, who jumped in uh, and, and did a ton of the setup and uh, uh, ushering presents around and just doing work when nobody else was there even helping her. Travis Crane, who was a bundle of energy over the course of the entire thing. Amy Truitt, um, Sandy Huber, Ellie Caro, who all of you labored diligently and served well. Um, so let's just give a round of applause. Thank you to the leaders, to each of you, and, um, and honestly, praise God for the good we were able to do. Um, it is a blessing to be a blessing. All right, this year for Advent, we are continuing our sermon series, A Messy Little Christmas, and, um, and to do that, we're looking back, not just to the birth of Christ, but past that all the way back to the beginning of the story, right? We're looking back to, to our original parents and his uh, as one who was born into our story to see why Jesus had to come, what problem was created, and how did Jesus coming solve that problem. Today we lit the second candle of Advent, which is the candle of peace, and uh, the title of today's sermon is Birth of Peace. Uh, and so we're going to be talking about how the coming of Christ invites us into a new experience of peace. And, and we need to define our terms. Because I think a lot of times when we are pursuing peace, we mistake peacefulness for peace. So when you're looking forward to Christmas, a lot of times what you're really hoping for is peacefulness. Let's be honest. You just want the kids not to, to kill each other, right? You want to be able to get to the family event and, and not bring up politics around the drunk uncle. Um, you, you want, you want uh, to avoid conflict. You, you want things to be calm. You want to avoid chaos. And, and in the midst of it all, you're dreaming of getting away, 
right? Calgon, take me away. You're dreaming of your beach or, or your mountain, wherever, you're, wherever your happy place is with your happy little penguins or, or bears or whatever it is that these peaceful little creatures, you, you just, you fantasize, man, not only can I get through this event with peacefulness, but if, if I could just get to a place of peacefulness where everything is serene and calm and, and man, then everything would be wonderful. Here's the challenge though, y'all. True peace doesn't come from a lack of conflict or a lack of chaos, Peacefulness is not peace, right? Peacefulness is an external event marked by a lack of conflict and chaos. But here's the challenge. If you're not at peace, it doesn't matter how peaceful your environment is. Because you're going to bring your restlessness and your turmoil and your personal pain into that place. So even if you were to be able to create the perfectly peaceful environment or to escape to the perfectly peaceful vacation, you take you with you. True peace doesn't start out there and work its way in. True peace starts in here and works its way out. So we're talking about the birth of peace. What we're talking about is the fact that true peace flows from a heart that is secure in grace that frees us to be comfortable in our own skin, in our own world, so that we bring our peace with us regardless of what's happening around us. So to dig into this, last week uh, we looked at the birth of hope. And that was kind of the foundational message um, for this. We looked at the story of Genesis chapter 3, and, and, and again, I, I would appeal to you that if you look at the early chapters of Genesis and you have a difficult time reading these because it just feels more like fairy tale than, than history to you, um, let's just meet where we can, and that, that's here. This is tremendously insightful into the human condition. In fact, I have not found a single story ever written that is more insightful to my heart and to explain what's happening, not only in my heart, but in the world around me, than Genesis 1 through 3. It is ridiculously insightful into, into the human condition. And as a result, as we dig in, I think it shows us, uh, it exposes our deep need and it shows why Jesus is such a great hope, right? Because in Genesis 1 through 3, what we see is a story of lost hope. Adam and Eve were created in the garden, and in the garden, in chapters 1 and 2, everything is good, right? God created and declares it's good. He creates and He declares it's good. He creates Adam and Eve in His own image to be stewards over all creation, and He says, behold, it is very good. He invites them to sit with Him and delight in the creation He's given them. Every piece of creation made a different note, but all those different notes were singing in harmony. There was a glorious hum to creation. Everything had its place. Everything had its purpose. And there was a, a fullness and a flourishing of life in which, in which everything, even though it was unique and different, was at peace because there was a glorious harmony in the diversity. Okay? Uh, shal- uh, uh, theologians call this period of time shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. Not the absence of conflict, but the presence of the fullness and the flourishing of life. But when you get to Genesis chapter 3, what you discover is that our first parents uh, rejected the shalom of God to pursue shalom on their own terms. They, instead of being content being created in the image of God, they decided they would be like God. They wouldn't be humbly dependent on God, they would compete with God. They would now establish their own glory. They would pursue their own pleasure. They would mark the boundaries of their own security. Instead of walking in humble dependence on God, they would now be like God and live in competition with God. And in this great rebellion, they lost shalom. And because they lost shalom, they lost hope. Because hope is the anticipation of a future good. Hope is, is, is what our, our appetites and our hungers drive us to have, right? If you're physically hungry after a long day of labor, you're going to come to the table in hope that the food will be, be satisfying, right? And you eat with great joy because it actually satisfies the hunger. But you need to realize that you have deeper hungers than, than just the, the, the hungers of the flesh. You have deep and abiding hungers for significance and security, and approval, and rest. And those hungers were designed to be fed in the overflow of God's goodness, 
to find your deep and abiding need for significance in the infinite outpouring of the approval of God, to find your deep and abiding need for rest, delighting in the God who loves you and in the gifts that he gave you in creation. You were designed to have these deep hungers satisfied in the presence of God, but because of our sin, we've been cut off from God, right? We call that death. Biblical death is, is not ceasing to exist, it's separation, And in the day they ate of the tree, they were separated from the presence of God. Their relationship with God died. And so even though they had hungers that could only be satisfied in the presence of God, they were now cut off from the God who could satisfy them. And as a result, they now had to turn to the creation instead of the creator. They now had to look to the things that God made instead of the God who made them to have those deep desires satisfied. So they tried to find their significance in their work. They tried to find their their need for love and approval satisfied in human relationships and the approval of mentors or lovers. They they tried to find their deep need for rest satisfied in distraction and and entertainment and and indulgences of of the flesh. They, They tried to have their deep need for security satisfied by the building of walls and the building of bank accounts. But the problem is, because these are hungers, infinite hungers, that are designed to be met in the outpouring of the presence of God, no amount of, of the things that God made can feed them. So that's the death of hope. Because what we find through life is that we keep having these hopes that disappoint. We, we hope that this thing will finally be the thing, and, and then it doesn't turn out to be. It might be great. It might be really good. But it's only temporarily satisfying. And after a while, that hope has to find a new anchor. It has to find a new thing. That hunger isn't satisfied, and so that hunger drives us. And what we explored last week is that that hunger is for the very shalom God created us to experience. And because of that, there's nothing in the world that can satisfy it. And so life is an ongoing experience of increased disappointment and ultimately despair. We call that being realistic. We just get to a point where we're like, well, there's nothing in life that actually satisfies. The best we can hope for is an enjoyable journey right? It's not the outcome, it's the journey. So we'll just keep hoping. And when you accomplish a goal, you can just ignore it and just set a new goal because it's ultimately the accomplishment of goals that's satisfying. Despair and hope dies. That was the first and most profound result of our rebellion against God, separation uh, from God, from the source of life. And in the midst of that, I want to remind you that God promised to send a hero. He, he promised that he wouldn't abandon us in that lack of hope. Right there in the middle of Genesis 3, he promises that he will send a son of the woman, who even though his heel will be bruised, he will crush the head of our enemy. It was the very, very first preaching of the gospel. It was the very first promise of God that he would send a hero, a son of the woman, who, who would step in to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, even though it came at great cost to himself. He kept reiterating that promise as as history moved on, right? To Noah, he promised that he would have a son, right? And and it's implied in that that this son will be like the ark. This son will carry God's chosen people through judgment and bring them safely to the blessing on the other side. And then he made a promise to Abraham that that your son will, will be blessed, but more than that, he will be a blessing to all the world and he will receive an inheritance, not just a piece of real estate by the Mediterranean Sea, but, but the entire world, a recreated creational order, once again thriving in the glory of God. And he made a promise to David and he said to David, you will have a son who sits on the throne forever and he will bring in a reign of righteousness. And when Jesus came, He fulfilled all those promises. He was the son of Eve. The one who didn't follow in his first parents' failure, but instead lived the life we should have lived. Succeeded in obedience, was faithful to his heavenly father in all things. He was the son of Noah, who even though he lived the life we should have lived, then died the death we deserve to die. So that he could become the living and true and better ark that would carry God's people through the judgment to the land of blessing on the other side. He he was the true and better son of David. Or Abraham, the, the, the son who would be the blessing to the entire world and who would receive an inheritance and bring that new family to it. And he was the true and better son of David. The king who would sit upon the throne, who would bring in the very righteous reign of God that we wouldn't be ruled by, by the broken kingdoms of man but delivered once again into the fullness of the shalom of the kingdom. Jesus 
was the hero. And he was our hero because he came on mission. He came to defeat death by entering into it for us. He took the consequence of our first parents' sin and rebellion and ours, death. And by entering into death and satisfying its just demands, by paying the price of our cosmic treason, he was able to rise again. And when he rose again victorious over death, he invites us into that victory. No longer to be clothed in our rebellion, in our sin, in our guilt, but now to be clothed in the very righteousness of Christ, the resurrection righteousness that's given to us as a gift in Christ. And because of that, we're invited back to the garden. The flaming sword, the flame has been extinguished because Christ absorbed it. He took the flame, he took the sword, he took the consequence. And because of that, the way is once again opened for us to come into the very presence of God, back into the presence of his holiness. His holiness now is... His holiness in, in, in Genesis 1 and 2 was the incredible gift of love. From Genesis 3 onward, his holiness became a threat because it was a competition to our need to be like God and, and it, like a fire, it would consume anything unworthy of its presence. But now, once again, we are invited to come into the very holiness of God because we're clothed with an alien righteousness, a righteousness that's not our own, not one that we've earned, but one that was given to us, the righteousness of a resurrected Christ. That is the birth of a new hope. And the hope, you guys, is this, that, that once again our hungers can be anchored in the right place. Our disordered desires can be reordered. We can find our deep and abiding hunger for, for significance and security and approval and for rest. Satisfied in the God who created those desires instead of in the things that he created. We can once again have our disordered hearts reordered, our desires reorganized. So that we're no longer living in competition with God, but living in humble dependence on God and grace. So that was what happened last week, and I wanted to go over that again because it's foundational to everything we, we talk about now. Because when they, when they brought death into the created order, there were, there were shock waves that went out from that. The first and immediate was their relationship with God. But the second was their relationship with themselves. They not only died in their relationship with God, they died in their relationship with themselves. They lost shalom. Take a look at verses 7 through 11, because I want you to see how this plays out in our passage. So right after, you know, the, Satan came and asked those questions, did he really say you, you can't do these things? And, and, and they listened, and they were, they were both deceived and tempted and willful, and they chose. And verse 7, after eating the fruit, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten at the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? All right. One more weird thing in a chapter of weird things, right? All of a sudden, they're like, ooh, I'm naked. I need to sew together some fig leaves. Had they not known they were naked already? Were they not Adam and Eve? Didn't God actually uh, preside over their marriage ceremony? They were already covenanted together in marriage. They had already consummated their marriage. They, they, they knew what it was to be naked and to enjoy it. They, they knew what each other looked like. Why all of a sudden are they like, oh, no, naked. Need to sew together some fig leaves. Well, this isn't about physical nakedness. This isn't about sex. This isn't about... It's about shame. For the first time in human history, humans understood that they had something to hide. In fact, not only did they understand that they had something to hide, they had a compulsion to hide. For the first time in human history, there was the awareness that they weren't who they pretended to be. And so they were driven to hide from God. They were driven to hide from one another. They were driven to hide from themselves because they didn't like what they saw. This is the birth of shame. It's the first time that they had any sense that I have something to hide, and in fact, I must hide. 
if I am to be safe. And we live with the ripple effects of that today, right? In this moment was born the voice of the inner critic. You know the inner critic, that voice in the back of your head that continually tells you, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not fast enough, I'm not beautiful enough, I'm, I'm not creative enough, I'm, I'm not enough. Now for you, maybe that voice has, has taken on a, a specific face, right? Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a, a peer that, that you really admired, but they, man, they, maybe it was a coach or a teacher. You know what's ironic though? That voice may have taken on that person's face, but it's not that person. You know why? Because that person doesn't live in, that, in your head. Who lives in your head? You do. That's you. It's not them. Right? Now, now, maybe they echoed fears you already had. Maybe they became the embodiment of the criticism you were afraid to hear, but the criticism was already there. All they did was voice what you didn't want to hear. And it's easier for you to blame them than it is for you to hear yourself. The voice of the inner critic is you. It is you attacking you. We all have it. We all have it. In this moment was the birth of the inner critic, the one, the one that said, you're not who you pretend to be. You're not who you say you are. You're not the one that's good enough. You're not the one that's strong enough. You're not the one that's smart. You're, you're just not. The birth of the inner critic, and then that results in the birth of self-doubt. In Genesis 1 and 2, man, they didn't have any reason for self-doubt because they had no one to impress and, and nothing to perform. They did everything they desired to do because there was a glorious hum to creation and everything they desired to do was in tune with everything else. Their, their, their desires weren't disordered. And as a result, there was no need for self-doubt or self-critique or, or, or for self-abuse. Or They could be creative. They could be artists. They could be scientists. They could be gardeners. They could be lovers. They could be without any need to continually come in and critique their own performance because they weren't experiencing what we experience, which is self-hate. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, some people get all freaked out when we start talking about self-love. Ooh, it's all bad. Really? Come on now. There's nothing wrong with self-love. There's something wrong with self-worship. There's something wrong with self-adoration. There's something wrong when, when we want to be treated like God, even though we don't have the character of God. Right? There's something wrong with that. Self-love? What's wrong with loving yourself if God loves you? What's wrong with loving what God created in you? Your, your unique expression of humanity because there's only one. You are a masterpiece created in the image of God himself. What's not to love? In this moment was born self-hate. Because I critique what I despise. I hate that I'm not what I want to be. I hate the way I fail. I hate the way I don't live up to my own expectations. Not only God's, not only yours. I hate it. It's the birth of of self-worship and self-loathing all wrapped up into one. It's the birth of the inner battle that all of us face. Where we want to be worshipped like God, but we loathe ourselves. Because of all the ways we're not. We lost shalom, peace with ourselves, not just with God, with ourselves. We declared we will be like God, but the problem is we can't be like God because we're not God. We're created in the image of God. And as a result, there's a huge gap between who we are and who we pretend to be, who we long to be, who we fight to be. There's a huge gap between our idealized version of ourselves and our true shadow selves. We work so, so hard to become that, that better version of ourselves, to have that idealized version of ourselves actualized in our lives. This is my best self. This is who I really am. And in fact, it comes out in our language sometimes when we're like, oh man, I'm sorry about that. I don't know where that came from. Don't know who that guy was. Yeah, that's not me. That's not me. Really? Who was it? Because it sure looked like you. Right? That was you. No. What we're saying in that moment is, is there's a gap. 
between who I wish I were and who I actually am, who I desperately want to believe I can be. And so what do I do? I abuse my shadow self. I despise my shadow self. And the reality is that's who I actually am. And I idolize this other version of myself that's not real. And that's the version I try to present to the world. That's the version I try to present to God. That's the version I desperately try to believe about myself. But there is a gap between our shadow selves and our idealized selves. And and you know what fills that gap? Shame. Shame fills the gap. See, let me explain shame. Shame. So we talk about guilt. Guilt is about what I do. So if I do something stupid, I feel guilt. And guilt is a sense of emotional indebtedness, right? So if I've done something stupid to somebody I love, and I've defrauded them, so, so maybe I, was, I, was, I acted in anger when I shouldn't have acted, and I defrauded them of kind words, or I defrauded them of, of, of a pleasant experience, or I defrauded them of, 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 of a good I could have done, but I withheld it, or a bad I shouldn't have done, but I gave it. That creates guilt. It's a sense of emotional indebtedness. And here's the irony about guilt. We always want to work when we feel guilt. We want to pay back the debt. And the problem with emotional debts is there's no way to work it off. You can't give enough candy. You can't bring home enough flowers. You can't write enough, enough love notes. You just you can't work off. You know what you need to do with guilt? You know, you know what needs to happen? The person that you've offended has to absorb the pain write off the debt and say, I forgive you. Then you're freed from your guilt. Because the only one who can pay the price of your sin is them because they're the ones who absorb the pain. The other option is to run away and just deny the guilt exists and and, and the the end there is the death of the relationship. So the way we deal with guilt is we try to work it off. right? But what we really need is for love to come in and forgive the debt. Shame. So guilt's about what I do. Shame is about who I am. Guilt says I did a bad thing. Shame says I am a bad person. Guilt says what I did was despicable. Shame says I am despicable. Shame is an internalized voice of condemnation that sees everything that is wrong and condemns it. It is a blanket of rejection. And what does shame drive us to do? We all know because we all experience it and we all do the same thing. This is a universal human experience. What do we do when we feel shame? We hide. When we feel shame, often we'll actually physically leave the space. If we can't physically leave the space, we will work ourselves up in a way to try to hide what we're genuinely feeling in the moment. So we, we put forward, a, a, we pretend and we perform so that others won't see the exposure of our condemnation. They won't see the exposure of what makes us feel despicable, rejected, and unlovable. We hide. We pick up our fig leaves and we jump in the bushes. We hide behind our pretending and our performing. So I want you to catch this, guys. I, because of our first parents' sin and because of mine, I want to be like God. I want to provide for myself. I want to mark the boundaries of my own glory. I, I want to find my pleasures in, in the ways I define my pleasures should be met. I, I want to be like God, but I can't. And that creates a gap between who I wish I were and who I actually am. And that gap is filled with shame, and because it's filled with shame, I pretend and I perform so that God won't see it, so that others won't see it, and so that I myself might even forget it exists. Isn't it funny how we laugh at the quaint nature of of Genesis chapter 3? Isn't that funny how they, oh, look, they sewed fig leaves together, right? Children's story, kind of stupid. They jump in the bushes. Right? Like they could hide from God in the bushes. And they knew God. They saw him create everything. But isn't that exactly what we do? Isn't that exactly what we do? We feel shame, so we, we try to hide behind the fig leaves of our pretending and our performing. 
We all have somebody we're trying to impress. Could be a parent. Could be a dead parent. You're still trying to impress them. Could be the coach. Could be the teacher. Could be, could be a neighbor. Could be your spouse. Could be your children. We all have somebody that we're looking to to say, remove my shame. See me in the way I need to be seen. Say to me the things that I need to hear. Cover me with the things that I need to be covered with so that I don't have to experience my shame. We sew together our fig leaves, we choose our audience, and we perform so incredibly carefully to try to get the response that we so desperately desire. We go to school, we go to work, we get married, we try to impress people, we buy stuff we can't afford, we try to wear the right clothes or have the right business card or or be smart enough or intelligent enough or funny enough or or in good enough physical condition with with all the right abs or, or, man, we're just, we're trying to find something that will cover us so that when people see it, they won't actually see us. They'll see this carefully curated image we desperately want to believe is real. And like an actor on a stage, we pretend. And if they believe it, maybe we can too. And if they say it back to us enough, maybe we'll actually believe it's true too. Here's the problem, though. When I put on my fig leaf or when I jump into my, my new home in the bushes, you know who I take with me? Me. <laughs> right? So, ironically, obviously I can't fool God. <laughs> right? He knows we're in the bushes. He, he, he knows what's behind the fig leaves. Right? But the irony is we can't fool ourselves. We might be able to fool others for a little while. You, you really can't even fool the people that are closest to you because even they... We'll come to find out who you really are and see you. But when we're hiding, even if we fooled everyone else, we can't fool ourselves unless we become mentally ill. Narcissists. But even they are trapped in the, the deepest suffering of, of, of delusion. Because they, even, even if they believe they're not, they have no shame, they still do and they're driven by it desperately. The gap is still there between who you are and who you wish you would be. And that's why you finally get your 401k. And you're still not safe. It's why you you finally move your way into an inner circle and you discover there's one more inner circle that you're not part of. It's why you finally get a boyfriend or a girlfriend or earn the love of a spouse or or get the acceptance of a mentor and, and you still feel lonely and insecure. Because you've lost peace with yourself. And no amount of pretending or performing can fix that. You can tweak what's out there forever to try to make it peaceful. But that will not produce peace in here. Because peace doesn't start its way from out there and work its way in. It isn't based on our circumstances. It isn't based on our success. It isn't based on our reputations. It isn't based on how how, how well we pretend or perform. It needs to start on the inside and work its way out. So here's the good news, y'all. We have a hero. We have a hero who stepped into our mess to meet us in it and bring us out of it. Jesus is the promised hero. Take a look at this verse. This is from Romans chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to get there in the spring in our study of Romans, but we're going to just look at this one verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Let me unpack that language a little bit. To be justified is to be declared right, right? Not just considered right, but declared right by the one person who has the authority to make that declaration, God himself. When we come before God in our sin, we are self-condemned. We already know we're sinners. We, we not only don't live up to the Ten Commandments, we don't even live up to our own standards. There's not a single person on the face of the earth who, if they are fully and completely honest, would be able to say, I deserve 
to be accepted into perfect holiness because I myself am also perfectly holy. The best we could say is I've done more good works than bad works. <laughs> and even that's self-deception. Because even our good works are often motivated by selfish desires. Often our best works are motivated by desires of self-glory and, and, and man, this is really going to help me cover my shame. Justified. Declared right. Because our hero went into ground zero of our sin, our cosmic treason, and absorbed the blast. Because he died the death we deserve to die. Satisfying God's justice and absorbing the pain that we had created. Remember, every guilt requires a payment on, on, from the person who who received the wound. We wounded God in our sin against Him and He had to absorb that wound and He did. He absorbed the pain of our sin by entering into our death. And then He canceled the debt and offers us forgiveness, full justification. You believe in Jesus Christ, right? It's by faith. You don't perform for this. You don't work for this. You don't do good works. You don't try to be more religious. You receive the gift by faith because it's, the only, it's your way of saying your salvation project is better than my self-salvation projects. It's not about what I do for you, God. It's about what you've done for me. And I rest in this incredible gift. I receive it by faith. When you believe in Jesus, you are justified. You are declared right before God because you're no longer covered by your sin. You're now covered by the resurrection righteousness of Christ. Yeah, but Steve, I'm still a sinner. I still struggle. I still do bad things. I know. So do I. But it's not my righteousness and it's not yours. Yeah, but, but once I believe, aren't I supposed to suddenly become... No, I don't know where you read that. You live between the advents just like everyone else. You've been forgiven, but you haven't been completely made whole. You've been made right or declared right, but you haven't been fully delivered into that rightness yet. And so as a result, man, we're still a mess. But that doesn't change the declaration of God. The declaration of God is based on the finished work of Christ, not your pitiful efforts to try to earn it. That's why it must be received by faith. And once it is received by faith, it's unshakable. Because once the God of the universe has declared you right, there's nobody that can nullify that declaration. So we receive it. All right? We say to God, I want to receive what you're offering. You paid the price. I want to receive the benefit. I receive that love. You've moved toward me in love. I receive that love. I'm humbled by that love. I am set free by that love. I now rest in that love. So my guilt is removed, right? My guilt is removed. Why? Because my guilt was left on the cross. Jesus died for my sins, and, and, and when his dead body came down, my sins stayed up there. And when he rose from the grave, he now clothed me in the resurrection righteousness that I could never earn for myself. My guilt is removed. And because of that, I now have peace with God, right? Look at the end of the verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can now actually come into the very presence of the righteousness of God and His, His holiness is no longer a threat to us. Why? Because we are now holy. Not based on our performance, but based on His. I can now come freely back into the garden. I can walk... Jesus walked up to that flaming sword, took its flame, and took its edge, and died. That he might silence that enmity and invite us back into the very presence of God. The guilt is removed, and because the guilt is removed, I have peace with God. Now listen, because we have peace with God, we can now experience the peace of God. Because the guilt is removed, there's no need to hide. Because the guilt is removed, we now have no need to pretend or to perform. Because our guilt is removed, our shame is silenced. Because there's no longer a gap between who we are and who God sees us to be. God sees us in Christ. 
He sees us exactly as we are, but he also sees us exactly as how he will recreate us to be. Because in the resurrection of Christ, we're not only clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but we are given the promise that we will become the embodiment of that righteousness. He will change us. He will set us free. He will transform us. Because we have peace with God, we can experience peace. Because we have peace with God, we can experience the peace of God. You know the only thing that can, that can remove the sense of exposure when you feel shame? The only thing that can remove the sense of exposure. You already know what it is. It's love. Have you ever felt vulnerable and exposed? Terrified, rejected, unlovable. What's the only thing that meets you with power in that place? Undeserved love. See, when someone comes in, in the same way we need someone to, to, to relieve us of our guilt by forgiving us of our debt, we need someone to remove our shame by clothing us with undeserved love. Grace is the only thing that can reclothe us and set us free from our addiction to pretending and performing. Love is the only thing that can give us the courage to be completely honest and vulnerable before God. To have nothing to hide. Nothing to pretend. Take a look at verses 9 and 10. Something interesting happens in these verses I want to point out. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, another strange thing and a very strange story. Why in the world is God showing up asking questions? Doesn't he already know? Isn't he like God? Doesn't he like omnipotence and omniscience? Isn't he all-powerful and all-knowing? What in the world? Was he suddenly deceived by the bushes? Where are you? Oh, there you are. Hey, how was your day? Oh, I didn't see that coming. You ate of the tree. Why is he asking questions? We need to realize is that when God asks questions, it's not because he needs to know something. It's because we do. God doesn't ask questions because he wants to discover something. He asks questions because he needs us to. He's inviting us to discover something. When he says, where are you? That is a profound existential question. Adam and Eve, where are you? Because you're no longer abiding in shalom. You're no longer living in humble dependence on my glory. You are no longer standing in the creational intent of goodness. Where are you? And why'd you get there? Right? Who told you that? Did you do this? Each time it's an invitation to humility and vulnerability. Do they respond with humility and vulnerability? No. (laughs) No. They blame shift. I didn't do it. She did it. I didn't do it. I was deceived. They blame shift. They're now competitive with one another. They're, they're, They're like, their shame drives them. Right? And we see this happen on social media all the time, don't we? When someone's exposed to their shame, they expose somebody else's shame. Why? Because if they're uglier, it means I'm not as ugly. Right? Yeah, but you, don't talk about me. Look at them. It's the impulse of shame that requires us to continually find fault in someone else as another way to hide our own. Don't we do the same exact thing? God asks us, where are you? And we're like, I'm... I'm over here at church. I'm working real hard. Where are you? I wasn't looking at porn. I was, I was doing research and I just, I don't know, I stumbled. Uh, well, how did you? We come up with every excuse. We find every. You guys listen, because we have peace with God. God has seen you at your worst. God has seen you more clearly than you see yourself. And guess what? He's already decided he loves you. 
He's already decided that he would send Jesus to die for you and rise again for you. He has already decided that he would put his glory on you. What do you have left to hide? What are you running from? The invitation is to love. Stop pretending like like God really wants your resume and not you. If I could just do a few more good things, if I could just work a little harder, if I could just have a little more self-control, if I could just if I could just overcome this thing, then 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 God might love me. And God the whole time is over here going, I never stopped loving you. Stop trying to impress me and just be loved by me. See, what blocks us from having an honest interaction with the love of God isn't God's love. It's our misperception of God. We see him as a disappointed father sitting in the corner with his arms crossed, waiting for us to earn his love, waiting for us to be worthy of his love, waiting for us to somehow be impressive enough to be loved. And the whole time he's like, stop! And just come here. Just be loved. Just be known. Be humble. Be vulnerable. Stop pretending. Stop performing. Because they're all your ways of running from me. Those are all your ways of once again trying to be like me instead of created in my image, humbly dependent on me. Set aside your performance. Set aside your, your deception. Set, just be humble and vulnerable. God's not waiting for you to fix yourself. You can't do anything to make God love you more. And you can't do anything to make God love you less. Because there's nothing he hasn't already seen about you. And he's already set his eternal covenant love upon you, believer in Christ. And those of you who haven't believed in Christ, you're invited, man. Because this justification is received by faith. That's the only way we receive it. Is to simply say, this is a free gift, and man, I want in on some of this. I would like to receive that gift. You've done for me what I couldn't do for myself. I guess I'll take the benefit, please. Faith is just a humble, dependent response to an invitation of love. Now here's something amazing that happens when we find the courage to do that. We show up expecting to be condemned and we're loved. We show up expecting to be looked down on and we're embraced. We show up expecting for God to despise us in the same way we despise ourselves. And instead, we're met by the Spirit of God in embrace of love. And you know what that does to our hearts? It actually changes us. All those things that you're trying to fix about yourself and you can't fix, God will fix in you as you simply respond to the love he has for you. Love is the only power strong enough in the universe to not just rearrange the furniture of your heart, to just reorient the behavior of your life, but to actually transform your life so that you become more like Christ. It's in receiving love that you are transformed into the image of that love. You will become who he's declared you to be as you simply respond and receive that love with humility and dependence. See, God loves you exactly as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. He loved Adam and Eve exactly as they were in the bushes, but he loved them too much to leave them there. He would send a hero. And he loves you exactly as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you exactly as you are. He will set you free, and he will set you free by loving you through the transformative power of grace. So when we taste that grace, that unexpected grace, when we are clothed in love, We come to peace with ourselves. We stop fighting to become that idealized version of ourselves because that's not who we were and it's not ever who we were designed to be. That's our our attempt to be like God. We actually become comfortable in the way God created us. We become comfortable in our desperate need because our desperate need has met my love. We become peaceful. And what's amazing is that when we experience the peace of God... It transcends the environment around us. We actually bring that peace to the chaos. 
We actually bring that peace to the conflict. We actually bring that peace to the difficulties around us. We no longer look to our situation to determine our peace. We now have a peace that helps us move through that situation. We no longer look to people to affirm us because God affirms us. We no longer look to people to to tell us we're worthy because God tells us we're worthy. And and because of that, we no longer have a need to hide in front of people. We We can let people know exactly who we are. We can let them see our brokenness. We can let them see our needs. We can be vulnerable with our, with our, own, our own mess instead of a desperate need to hire, uh, hide it. Why? Because we've already been accepted by God. And if I'm loved by God, I don't need you. I need you in a relational way, but I don't need you in a God way. I need you because I love you. I'm not looking to you to be God in my life. I'm looking to you to be my friend in my life. And when I'm not looking to you to be God, it allows me to be humble and honest and vulnerable. You can see my mess. Because if you get upset by it, that's all right. God loves me. And honestly, when I'm vulnerable, it's so disarming. It invites others into vulnerability too. Which actually creates the framework for more vibrant relationships, more honest love. When we rest in God's approval of us, we can rest from seeking that approval from others. We can stop hiding, pretending, and performing. So I know we're moving into a a messy um, holiday season, and so just to wrap up, I want to give you three very quick points to put the rubber on the ground, to, to put shoes on the truth so that you can live this out in the mess that's coming. First, work from your acceptance, not for it. As you move into the holiday season, as you're moving into the, these, these situations and interactions with difficult family and friends where, where, where shame is invariably layered and complex, <laughs> because in families, we not only have personal shame, we have family shame, and there are layers and layers and layers of hiding, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Work from your acceptance, not for it. In other words, prepare your heart beforehand. Recognize your tendency to pretend and to perform and reject it, repent of it, run to God and say, I know you already accept me and love me. Work from it, not for it. Root your, your heart in that love. Stop, stop believing the lie that when I'm good enough, then I'll be loved. When I'm significant enough, then I'll be loved. When I'm secure enough, then I'll be loved. No, you're loved. And because you're loved, you're significant. Because you're loved, you're secure. Because you're loved, you can find rest. Work from your acceptance, not for it. Second, listen to the right questions. In Genesis uh, 3, we have two people asking questions. The enemy asks questions at the beginning. Did God really say? Did God really say? And the purpose of his questions is always to get you to doubt God. Because if you can doubt God, you're going to be separated from shalom. And if you're separated from shalom, you're going to enter into the chaos of death. God shows up and asks questions, where are you? You're going to be tempted over the course of the holidays to wonder, did, did God really say? Did God really say he loves me? Did God really say I'm fully and completely accepted because, man, I'm a mess? Did God really say? Just recognize those questions aren't from God. Instead, God shows up and says, where are you? Not as an accusation, but as an invitation. Where are you? I'm right here. Where are you? Come on out. Where are you? Stop hiding. Come on. And when you find yourself hiding very, very quickly, step out of the hiding. As soon as you realize that shame impulse is pushing you back into those sinful tendencies to pretend and perform, run back into the arms of the God who loves you. Listen to the right questions. Thirdly, when you feel encroaching shame and condemnation, man, run to God and not away. Run to God and not back to the bushes. The bushes offer you no protection. That pretending and performing is an illusion of protection. There, there's, there's nothing there for you. Run to God, the God who loves you, who knows you, who has accepted you and declared you right. Run to God and be clothed by his love. And do it right there. Like right, you can pray right there at the table. You can pray right there on the phone call. You can pray, and, and, and if you need to get away from somebody whose voice is, is so overwhelmingly loud in your head, excuse yourself to the restroom and pray right there. 
re-enter the presence of your Father and be loved. And in being loved, it will equip you to stand in vulnerability, humility, and honesty without the internal need to pretend and perform, to be clothed in your shame and instead be clothed in His love. Here's the thing, you're going to hide one way or the other. You're either going to hide behind the image you're creating for yourself or you're going to hide behind the righteousness Christ has given you. Make the right choice. Run to the God who loves you and remind yourself that you are clothed in love. Let me close with some more prayer. And uh, we'll share communion in a moment. Let me pray. Father, we we thank you that uh, you love us. Spirit, there are friends here this morning that are having a really hard time believing this. Some of them want to believe it. But they know themselves and they've seen their shame and they despise themselves so much they're having a hard time believing that you don't despise them as well. Spirit, will you right now bring them the comfort of your grace, your undeserved, unearned, unlimited, unqualified love. And press upon their hearts the invitation to step out of the pretending and performing, to step out of the shame, to step out of the shadows, to step out in humble vulnerability, naked and exposed. Knowing, Lord, that when you see us in that condition, you don't mock us, you don't condemn us, you don't, you don't come with critique, you don't come with advice, you come with love. You meet us in the coldness and in the shivering of our exposure and you wrap us in the very righteousness of Christ. Lord, will you awaken our hearts to the beauty of this invitation? Will you call us near? You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.